is read the new Jim Crow mass incarceration in the age of colorblindness by Michelle Alexander chapter one continued the birth of Jim Crow the backlash against the gains of African Americans in the reconstruction era was swift and severe as African Americans obtained political power and began the long march toward greater social and economic equality, whites reacted with panic and outrage. Southern conservatives vowed to reverse reconstruction and sought the abolition of the Freedmen's Bureau and all political instrumentalities designed to secure Negro supremacy. Their campaign to redeem the South was reinforced by a resurgent Ku Klux Klan, which fought a terrorist campaign against Reconstruction governments and local leaders, complete with bombings, lynchings, and mob violence. The terrorist campaign proved highly successful. Redemption resulted in the withdrawal of federal troops from the South and the effective abandonment of African Americans and all those who had fought or supported an egalitarian racial order. The federal government no longer made any effort to enforce federal civil rights legislation and funding for the Freedmen's Bureau was slashed to such a degree that the agency became virtually defunct. Once again, vagrancy laws and other laws defining activities such as mischief and insulting gestures as crimes were enforced vigorously against blacks. The aggressive enforcement of these criminal offenses opened up an enormous market for convict leasing in which prisoners were contracted out as laborers to the highest private bidder. Douglas Blackman, in Slavery by Another Name, describes how tens of thousands of African Americans were arbitrarily arrested during this period. Many of them hit with court costs and fines which had to be worked off in order to secure their release. With no means to pay off their debts, prisoners were sold as forced laborers to lumber camps, brickyards, railroads, farms, plantations, and dozens of corporations throughout the South. Death rates were shockingly high, for the private contractors had no interest in the health and well-being of their laborers, unlike the earlier slave owners who needed their slaves at a minimum to be healthy enough to survive hard labor laborers were subject to almost continual lashing by long horse whips and those who collapsed due to injuries or exhaustion were often left to die convicts had no meaningful legal rights at this time and no effective redress they were understood quite literally to be slaves of the state. 
the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution had abolished slavery, but allowed one major exception. Slavery remained appropriate as punishment for a crime. In a landmark decision by the Virginia Supreme Court, Ruffin v. Commonwealth, issued at the height of Southern Redemption, the court put to rest any notion that convicts were legally distinguishable from slaves. For a time during his service to the penitentiary, he is in a state of penal servitude to the state. He has, as a consequence of his crime, not only forfeited his liberty, but all his personal rights, except those which the law in its humanity accords to him. He is, for the time being, a slave of the state. He is civiltier mortis, and his estate, if he has any, is administered like that of a dead man. The state of Mississippi eventually moved from hiring convict labor to organizing its own convict labor camp known as Parchman Farm. It was not alone. During the decade following redemption, the convict population grew 10 times faster than the general population. Prisoners became younger and blacker, and the length of their sentences soared. It was the nation's first prison boom and, as they are today, the prisoners were disproportionately black. After a brief period of progress during Reconstruction, African Americans found themselves once again virtually defenseless. The criminal justice system was strategically employed to force African Americans back into a system of extreme repression and control, a tactic that would continue to prove successful for generations to come. Even as convict leasing faded away, strategic forms of exploitation and repression emerged anew. As as Blackman notes, the apparent demise of leasing prisoners seemed a harbinger of a new day, But the harsher reality of the South was that the new post-Civil War neo-slavery was evolving, not disappearing. Redemption marked a turning point in the quest by dominant whites for a new racial equilibrium, a racial order that would protect their economic, political, and social interests in a world without slavery. Yet a clear consensus among whites about what the new racial order should be was still lacking. The redeemers who overthrew Reconstruction were inclined to retain such segregation practices as had already emerged, but they displayed displayed no apparent disposition to expand or universalize the system. The three alternative philosophies of race relations were put forward to compete for the region's support, all of which rejected the doctrines of extreme racism espoused by some redeemers, liberalism, conservatism, and radicalism.
The liberal philosophy of race relations emphasized the stigma of segregation and the hypocrisy of a government that celebrates freedom and equality yet denies both on account of race. This philosophy born in the North never gained much traction among Southern whites or blacks. The conservative philosophy, by contrast, attracted wide support and was implemented in various contexts over a considerable period of time. Conservatives blamed liberals for pushing blacks ahead of their proper station in life and placing blacks in positions they were unprepared to fill, a circumstance that had allegedly contributed to their downfall. They warned blacks that some redeemers were not satisfied with having decimated reconstruction and were prepared to wage an aggressive war against blacks throughout the South. With some success, the conservatives reached out to African-American voters, reminding them that they had something to lose as well as gain and that the liberals' preoccupation with political and economic equality presented the danger of losing all that blacks had so far gained. (coughs) The radical philosophy offered for many African Americans the most promise. It was predicated on a searing critique of large corporations, particularly railroads and the wealthy elite in the North and South. The radicals of the late 19th century, who later formed the Populist Party, viewed the privileged classes as conspiring to keep poor whites and blacks locked into a subordinate political and economic position. For many African American work voters, the populist approach was preferable to the paternalism of liberals. Populists preached an equal equal equalitarianism of want and poverty, the kinship of a common grievance and a common oppressor. As described by Tom Watson, a prominent populist leader, in a speech advocating a union between black and white farmers, you are kept apart that you may be separately fleeced of your earnings. You are made to hate each other because upon that hatred is rested the keystone of the arch of financial despotism that enslaves you both. You are deceived and blinded that you may not see how this race antagonism perpetuates a monetary system which beggars both. In an effort to demonstrate their commitment to a genuinely multiracial working class movement against white elites, the populists made strides toward racial integration, a symbol of their commitment to a class-based unity. African Americans throughout the South responded with great hope and enthusiasm, eager to be true partners in a struggle for social justice. According to Woodward, it is altogether probable that during the brief populist upheaval in the 90s, Negroes and Native whites achieved a greater 
community of mind and harmony of political purpose than ever before or since in the South. The challenges inherent in creating the alliance sought by the populist were formidable. As race prejudice ran the highest among the very white populations to which the populist appeal was specifically addressed, the depressed lower economic classes. Nevertheless, the populist movement initially enjoyed remarkable success in the South, fueled by a wave of discontent aroused by the severe agrarian depression of the 1880s and 1890s. The populists took direct aim at the conservatives who were known as comprising a party of privilege and they achieved a stunning series of political victories throughout the region. Alarmed by the success of the populace and the apparent potency of the alliance between poor and working class whites and African Americans, the conservatives raised the cry of white supremacy and resorted to the tactics they had employed in their quest for redemption, including fraud, intimidation, bribery, and terror. Segregation laws were proposed as part of a deliberate effort to drive a wedge between poor whites and African Americans. These discriminatory barriers were designed to encourage lower class whites to retain a sense of superiority over blacks making it far less likely that they would sustain interracial political alliances aimed at toppling the white elite. The laws were in effect another racial bribe. As William Julius Wilson has noted, as long as poor whites directed their hatred and frustration against the black competitor, the planters were relieved of class hostility directed against them. Indeed, in order to overcome the well-funded suspicions of poor and illiterate whites that they, as well as blacks, were in danger of losing the right to vote, the leaders of the movement pursued an aggressive campaign of white supremacy in every state prior to black disenfranchisement. Ultimately, the populist caved to the pressure and abandon their former allies. While the populist movement was at the peak of zeal, Woodward observed, the two races had surprised each other and astonished their opponents by the harmony they achieved and the goodwill with which they cooperated. But when it became clear that the conservatives would stop at nothing to decimate their alliance, the biracial partnership dissolved and populist leaders realigned themselves with conservatives. Even Tom Watson, who had been among the most forceful advocates for an interracial alliance of farmers, concluded that populist principles could never be fully embraced by the South until blacks were eliminated from politics. The agricultural depression the agricultural depression, taken together with a series of failed reforms and broken political promises, 
had pyramided to a climax of social tensions. Dominant whites concluded that it was in their political and economic interest to scapegoat blacks, and permission to hate came from sources that had formerly denied it, including northern liberals eager to reconcile with the South, southern conservatives who had once promised blacks protection from racial extremism, and populists who cast aside their dark-skinned allies when the partnership fell under siege. History seemed to repeat itself, just as the white elite had successfully driven a wedge between poor whites and blacks following Bacon's rebellion by creating the institution of black slavery, another racial caste system was emerging nearly two centuries later, in part due to efforts by white elites to decimate a multiracial alliance of poor people. By the turn of the 20th century, every state in the South had laws on the books that disenfranchised blacks and discriminated against them in virtually every sphere of life, lending sanction to a racial ostracism that extended to schools, churches, housing, jobs, restrooms, hotels, restaurants, hospitals, orphanages, prisons, funeral homes, morgues, and cemeteries. Politicians competed with each other by proposing and passing ever more stringent, oppressive, and downright ridiculous legislation, such as laws specifically prohibiting blacks and whites from playing chess together. The public symbols and constant reminders of black subjugation were supported by whites across the political spectrum. Though the plight of poor whites remained largely unchanged, for them, the racial bribe was primarily psychological. The new racial order, known as Jim Crow, a term apparently derived from a minstrel show character, was regarded as the final settlement, the return to sanity and the permanent system. Of course, the earlier system of racialized social control, slavery, had also been regarded as final, sane, and permanent by its supporters. Like the earlier system, Jim Crow seemed natural, and it became difficult to remember that alternative paths were not only available at one time, but nearly embraced. Jim Crow. Scholars have long debated the beginning and end of Reconstruction, as well as exactly when Jim Crow ended and the Civil Rights Movement or Second Reconstruction began. Reconstruction is most typically described as stretching from 1863, when the North freed the slaves, to 1877, when it abandoned them and withdrew federal troops from the South. There is much less certainty regarding the beginning of the end of Jim Crow. 
The general public typically traces the death of Jim Crow to Brown versus Board of Education, although the institution was showing signs of weakness years before. By 1945, a growing number of whites in the North had concluded that the Jim Crow system would have to be modified, if not entirely overthrown. This consensus was due to a number of factors, including the increased political power of blacks due to migration to the North and the growing membership and influence of the NAACP particularly its highly successful legal campaign challenging Jim Crow laws in federal courts. Far more important in the view of many scholars, however, is the influence of World War II. The blatant contradiction between the country's opposition to the crimes of the Third Reich against European Jews and the continued existence of a racial caste system in the United States was proving embarrassing, severely damaging the nation's credibility as leader of the free world. There was also increased concerns that without greater equality for African Americans, blacks would become susceptible to communist influence given Russia's commitment to both racial and economic equality. In Gunnar Myrtle's highly influential book, The American Dilemma, published in 1944, Myrtle made a passionate plea for integration based on the theory that the inherent contradiction between the American creed of freedom and equality and the treatment of African Americans was not only immoral and profoundly unjust, but was also against the economic and foreign policy interests of the United States. The Supreme Court seemed to agree. In 1944, in Smith v. Allwright, the Supreme Court ended the use of the all-white primary election, and in 1946, the court ruled that state laws requiring segregation on interstate buses were unconstitutional. Two years later, the court voided any real estate agreements that racially discriminated against purchasers. And in 1949, the court ruled that Texas's segregated law school for blacks was inherently unequal and inferior in every respect to its law school for whites. In 1950, in McLaren v. Oklahoma, it declared that Oklahoma had to desegregate its law school. Thus, even before Brown, the Supreme Court had already begun to set in motion a striking pattern of desegregation. Brown v. Board of Education was unique, however. It signaled the end of home rule in the South with respect to racial affairs. Earlier decisions had chipped away at the separate but equal doctrine, yet Jim Crow had managed to adapt to the changing legal environment, and most Southerners had remained confident that the institution would survive. 
Brown threatened not only to abolish segregation in public schools, but also by implication the entire system of legalized discrimination in the South. After more than 50 years of nearly complete deference to Southern states and non-interference in their racial affairs, Brown suggested a reversal in course. A mood of outrage and defiance swept the South, not unlike the reaction to emancipation and reconstruction following the Civil War again. Racial equality was being forced upon the South by the federal government and by 1956, Southern white opposition to desegregation mushroomed into a vicious, vicious backlash. In Congress, North Carolina Senator Sam Irvin Jr. drafted a racist polemic, the Southern Manifesto, which vowed to fight to maintain Jim Crow by all legal means. Irwin succeeded in sustaining Irwin succeeded in obtaining the support of 101 out of 128 members of Congress from the 11 original Confederate states. A fresh wave of white terror was hurled at those who supported the dismantling of Jim Crow. White citizens' councils were formed in almost every southern city and backwater town, comprised primarily of middle to upper middle class whites in business and the clergy, just as southern legislatures had passed the black codes in response to the early steps of reconstruction in the years immediately following Brown versus Board, five southern legisl- five southern legislatures passed nearly 50 new Jim Crow laws. In the streets, resistance turned violent. The Ku Klux Klan reasserted itself as a powerful terrorist organization committing castrations, killings, and the bombing of black homes and churches. NAACP leaders were beaten, pistol whipped, and shot. As quickly as it began, desegregation across the South ground to a halt. In 1958, 13 school systems were desegregated. In 1960, only 17. In the absence of a massive grassroots movement directly challenging the racial caste system, Jim Crow might be alive and well today. Yet, In the 1950s, a civil rights movement was brewing, emboldened by the Supreme Court's decision and a shifting domestic and international political environment. With extraordinary bravery, civil rights leaders, activists, and progressive clergy launched boycotts, marches, and sit-ins protesting the Jim Crow system. They endured fire hoses, police dogs, bombings, and beatings by white mobs, as well as by the police. Once again, federal troops were sent to the South to provide protection for blacks attempting to exercise their civil rights, and the violent reaction of white racists was met with horror in the North. The dramatic high point of the civil rights movement occurred in 1963. The Southern struggle had given 
the Southern struggle had grown from a modest group of black students demonstrating peacefully at one lunch counter to the largest mass movement for racial reform and civil rights in the 20th century. Between autumn 1961 and the spring of 1963, 20,000 men, women, and children had been arrested. In 1963 alone, another 15,000 were imprisoned and 1,000 desegregation protests occurred across the region in more than 100 cities. On June 12, 1963, President Kennedy announced that he would deliver to Congress a strong civil rights bill, a declaration that transformed him into a widely recognized ally of the civil rights movement. Following Kennedy's assassination, President Johnson professed his commitment to the goal of the full assimilation of more than 20 million Negroes into American life and ensured the passage of comprehensive civil rights legislation. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 formally dismantled the Jim Crow system of discrimination in public accommodations, employment, voting, education, and federally financed activities. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 arguably had even greater scope as it rendered illegal numerous discriminatory barriers to effective political participation by African Americans and mandated federal review of all new voting regulations so that it would be possible to determine whether their use would perpetuate voting discrimination. Within five years, the effects of the Civil Rights Revolution were undeniable. Between 1964 and 1969, the percentage of African American adults registered to vote in the South soared. In Alabama, the rate leaped from 19.3% to 61.3%. In Georgia, 27.4% to 60.4%. In Louisiana, 31.6% to 60.8%. And Mississippi, 6.7% to 66.5%. Suddenly, black children could shop in department stores, eat at restaurants, drink from water fountains and go to amusement parks that were once off limits. Miscegnation? I don't know this word, oh my goodness. Miscegenation? Wow. Misseg... Pause for the cause. Miscegenation laws were declared unconstitutional and the rate of interracial marriage climbed. While dramatic progress was apparent in the political and social realms, civil rights activists became increasingly concerned that 
Without major economic reforms, the vast majority of blacks would remain locked in poverty. Thus, at the peak of the civil rights movement, activists and others began to turn their attention to economic problems, arguing that socioeconomic inequality interacted with racism to produce crippling poverty and related social problems. Economic issues emerged as a major focus of discontent. As political scientists Francis Fox Piven and Richard Cloward have described, blacks became more indignant over their condition, not only as an oppressed racial minority in a white society, but as poor people in an affluent one. Activists organized boycotts, picket lines, and demonstrations to attack discrimination in access to jobs and the denial of economic opportunity. Perhaps the most famous demonstration in support of economic justice is the March on Washington for Jobs and Economic Freedom in August 1963. The wave of activism associated with economic justice helped to focus President Kennedy's attention on poverty and black unemployment. In the summer of 1963, he initiated a series of staff studies on those subjects. By the end of the summer, he declared his intention to make the eradication of poverty a key legislative objective in 1964. Following Kennedy's assassination, President Lyndon Johnson embraced the anti-poverty rhetoric with great passion, calling for an unconditional war on poverty in his State of the Union address in January 1964. Weeks later, he proposed to Congress the Economic Opportunities Bill of 1964. The shift in focus served to align the goals of the civil rights movement with key political goals of poor and working class whites who were also demanding economic reforms. As the civil rights movement began to evolve into a poor people's movement, it promised to address not only black poverty but white poverty as well, thus raising the specter of a poor and working class movement that cut across racial lines. Martin Luther King Jr. and other civil rights leaders made it clear that they viewed the eradication of economic inequality as the next front in the human rights movement and made great efforts to build multiracial coalitions that sought economic justice for all. Genuine equality for black people, King reasoned, demanded a radical restructuring of society, one that would address the needs of the black and white poor throughout the country. Shortly before his assassination, he envisioned bringing to Washington, D.C. thousands of the nation's disadvantaged in an interracial alliance that embraced rural and ghetto blacks, Appalachian whites, Mexican Americans, Puerto Ricans, and Native Americans to demand jobs and income, the right to live. In a speech delivered in 1968, King acknowledged there had been some progress for blacks since the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, 
but insisted that the current challenges required even greater resolve and that the entire nation must be transformed for economic justice to be more than a dream for poor people of all colors. As historian Gerald McKnight observes, King was proposing nothing less than a radical transformation of the civil rights movement into a populist crusade calling for redistribution of economic and political power. America's only civil rights leader was now focusing on class issues and was planning to descend on Washington with an army of poor to shake the foundation of the power structure and force the government to respond to the needs of the ignored underclass. With the success of the civil rights movement and the launching of the poor people's movement, it was apparent to all that a major disruption in the nation's racial equilibrium had occurred. Yet, as we shall see below, Negroes stood only a brief moment in the sun. Conservative whites began once again to search for a new racial order that would conform to the needs and constraints of the time. This process took place with the understanding that whatever the new order would be, it would have to be formally race neutral. It could not involve explicit or clearly intentional race discrimination. A similar phenomenon had followed slavery and reconstruction as white elites struggled to define a new racial order with the understanding that whatever the new order would be, it could not include slavery. Jim Crow eventually replaced slavery, but now it too had died and it was unclear what might take its place. Barred by law from invoking race explicitly, those committed to racial hierarchy were forced to search for new means of achieving their goals according to the new rules of American democracy. History reveals that the seeds of the new system of control were planted well before the end of the civil rights movement. A new race-neutral language was developed for appealing to old racist sentiments, a language accompanied by a political movement that succeeded in putting the vast majority of blacks back in their place. Proponents of racial hierarchy found they could install a new racial caste system without violating the law or the new limits of acceptable political discourse by demanding quote-unquote law and order rather than segregation forever.